I I don't know. Take that out. Gosh. <laughs> no, that's good. You do want me to take it out? I mean, that, I thought that was a great answer, but um, yeah, no, you can keep it in. After more than eight years of marriage, Alex finally shared a secret with his wife, Megan, that he had kept from everyone in his life for 30 years. He was dealing with major manic and depressive episodes, hearing voices in his head and seeing images no one else could see. In the five years since his diagnosis with schizoaffective disorder, Megan and Alex have learned a lot as they face this challenge together. They share their insights on this episode. My name is Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness and Me. All right, so I am Alex Rosenhan. I was born in Sandy, Utah. Lived in Utah most of my life. Um, And I have schizoaffective disorder. My wife, his name is Megan. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Um, I grew up in Sandy as well. Um, Alex and I met in high school three mutual friends we have three kids and a dog and what kinds of things do you guys like to do individually and as a family uh i like anything sports really um that's my big passion i grew up i I played basketball in high school and college um but most of my time is spent raising children that's awesome and what do you like to do together with your kids um we like to go fishing. They like fishing. Um, playing around in our backyard and camping, yeah. sledding, ice skating, walks. You're a very outdoorsy family. Try to be. That's awesome. I think that's so important, especially in the world we live in now where screens are so much a part of our daily lives. It's just so important to get outside. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Well, Alex, I want to start by asking you when you were first diagnosed with a mental illness. Yeah, so I was diagnosed initially with bipolar uh, disorder. Um, it was in 2016. Yeah, 2016, officially. And it was about six to 12 months after that until I really opened up to my therapist um, <clears throat> about some of the uh, hallucinations and auditory, uh, voices in my head. Uh, and so it was about 2017 when I was officially diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, but looking back through my life, I've, I've, I've had it. I can remember the first instances back when I was five years old of hearing voices, having hallucinations, and, um, I'd say some psychosis that goes with that. And then that's developed some anxiety to go along with it. And so I've had that and and didn't tell anyone, not even my parents, absolutely no one tried to keep it a secret. It was my secret. I kept until 2016 when I finally broke down. Uh, Megan got me to crack. And after a few um, suicide attempts is really when it, it kind of hit its low point and I had to let it out. And so she finally got me to, to talk about it. And since then it's been a definitely a roller coaster. I'm 37. So it was, was, however long that is, 
almost 30 years of keeping a secret. Um, I mean, I based my life around it. all my decisions in life were um, based around not letting anyone know about the secret or get close enough uh, to, to that secret. And so uh, I was very quiet uh, growing up when I was younger, I was, I was very outgoing, very personable, made friends easy. And then the switch just turned and I became very, very quiet and guarded um, and didn't didn't really like to communicate a whole lot. And so that kind of was my shield to not let people in. So can you explain the difference? Because I recently spoke with uh someone in his spouse who had bipolar one disorder, which does involve some psychosis and also um, sort of delusions, I guess you could say. So what first led to that bipolar diagnosis? Like what did you share with your therapist or what symptoms did you admit to at first that made them think it was bipolar one? Yeah, I went into stay a therapist through my wife's work and uh, they kind of, asked me a bunch of questions and really it was that the, the swings from depression to manic episodes of, and that's where they, they started with the bipolar and kind of the classic symptoms when it comes to, to bipolar of really low lows, really high highs, uh, just swings up and down, <clears throat> you know, multiple times a month. And, and so that's initially what I thought, cause that's what I told them. I didn't tell them about, anything else uh till later on and so once i started with a therapist and we kind of unpacked everything and i i was able to open up more um you know i told them about for me there's two two distinct voices in my head a female and a male voice that's always with me and always talking um and then about you know hallucinations and seeing seeing people um and that's really when they started to to hone in on the schizoaffective disorder. Interesting. So does that mean that the manic episodes and depressive episodes are part of schizoaffective disorder or do you have two diagnoses? Uh it's it's part of it. So I like to think of schizoaffective or, disorder as take the best things or, or the things about schizo schizophrenia and bipolar and combine the two. So I was, I'm lucky enough to have both. Um, and so schizoaffective disorders is not as well known. Not very many out there have it. Uh, I, I very rarely meet someone that even knows what it is. Um, but it, but that's the easiest way to think about it is, you know, take a bunch of the, the parts of schizophrenia, the parts of bipolar and stick it together and you get me. Wow. I, I had never heard of it. I assumed it was the same thing as schizophrenia, but now I'm understanding that it's different. Wow. Like you said, that's, you get both things and that, that's gotta be really difficult. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely made life uh, more difficult. Um, especially the, you know, 25 plus years growing up without telling anyone. Right. From the outside, it just seemed like I was quiet and shy and, you know, normal. I tried very, very hard to put on that, you know, that brave face and act normal, even though it was inside was, it was killing me. 
Megan, I'm very curious to hear what your reaction was. I mean, was the first that you knew about it after he was diagnosed or had he started talking to you before he talked to the therapist? So we were out for to dinner for our eighth anniversary and I just was kind of questioning him because I felt like we were just like super distant from each other and like I was just was like wondering what was going on um and like just kept pushing him asking him questions like trying to figure out like what was going on in our relationship and he um finally pulled off into a parking lot and told me um that he had been suicidal for the last year and I recently found out that the night before he opened up to me he had committed or attempted um, suicide. Anyway, so he told me he had been suicidal. And so I just knew that we needed to get him help. Um, we were on our way to his parents' house to pick up our daughter. And like, I wanted to tell his parents like right away so we could have like help and support. But he wasn't ready for that. Um, so um I got, we just got him into a therapist through my works EAP. And then I reached out to a friend who um, works in, um, she's a mental health nurse. So I reached out to her um, to find out what clinic or where we should go to get him the help that he needed. So as far as you knew, he was depressed. Is that pretty much what you understood because when you hear suicidal I think at least for me the first thing that comes to mind is depression is that what you thought or did you did he already tell you a little bit about the voices and that kind of thing no he didn't tell me about the voices till probably 2017 so yeah I just thought he was depressed and um which is scary enough as it is Yes. So you, you obviously were able to sense that there was something going on and it it seems Alex, like maybe everything was kind of coming to a head at that point in your life. Yeah, it was definitely a a breaking point uh, for me. And so kind of that, that, that attempt the night before was kind of the the breaking point. And I knew I had to do something or else I wouldn't be around much longer. And so She'd caught me at the right time, and so I started to tell her. And like she said, I I didn't tell her everything right away, but over the course of about six months, I I started to kind of open up. And uh, when when you keep a secret that long, it's hard to then tell people about it um, and and let go of that secret. And so it took took a while to to even tell her. Yeah, and even to unravel all of it. Yeah, and even even for me, it's been I mean, still a learning process of uh, I kind of have a letter that I was going to send to my family that uh, I, I just continually think about kind of my, my past and, and growing up and things and always finding new little pieces of, uh, of, you know, why I've made decisions in my life or why things have happened. Um, and it started to kind of make more sense where before it just it didn't make any mm-hmm. sense. I just thought it was normal. Right. Isn't that interesting how people just assume that what their experience is, is what everybody experiences. Yeah. And, and when I was, when I was little, I definitely, one of the driving forces to keep it secret was 
you know, growing up in the eighties and the nineties, all of the movies, all of, you know, there wasn't the discussion around mental health, like they're, you know, starting to now. And so I thought, you know, if, if, if I was different that they were going to send me away to the mental hospital and lock me up. And I, I played baseball and, and sports growing up specifically baseball. Um, and that was kind of my saving grace. Um, right. it was the only time where the voices went away, um, and was during practice or a game, but, uh, you know, I, I was definitely afraid of getting, you know, committed to hospital or, or, um, getting sent away and not being able to play baseball. And so that was definitely a huge driving force of keeping a secret. Of course. In what ways has this disorder affected your life, uh, particularly with things like schooling and work, and then also as a parent and as a spouse? You know, when it comes to school, it definitely made it more challenging, especially when I was in the, the depressive episodes, made it really hard to, to concentrate. Um, really made it hard to to have the energy to study. First year of school, um, of college was really really hard because it was just I was on my own and didn't know how to deal with things. My parents growing up would, in, in order for me to play sports, I had to keep a, a 3.5 GPA, and so that kind of drove me to make sure I was doing well in school. But once I got to college, it, it definitely took over and it was hard to go to class and sit there and, and be able to pay attention uh, with the voices in, in my head. And it's just they're nonstop constant. And so it, it took a long time to be able to hear what people were saying. And sometimes even today, I, I still struggle with that. Megan will will say something to me and I have no idea she's even talking to me. Mm-hmm. Um and same thing at work. I've had that many times at work. Um, and really even just, you know, some days just wanting to get out of bed and, and even start the day. Um, and, and, you know, a huge portion of it that I've, I've started to, to get over is, is one of the huge fears of mine was meeting with people where I didn't drive the conversation so whether it was even with our family and me just sitting there and someone coming up and talking to me, starting conversation, I didn't want to sound like I didn't know what I was talking about or stumbling over my words. Um, and so oftentimes I would, you know, exile myself. And, uh, you know, I think back of all the times where I could have made better connections with people. Um, and it's only been the last few months where I've really made strides in that. Um, and, and so it's definitely affected, you know, promotion opportunities at work, um, connections with friends and family. And then, you know, the most important, it's, it's been challenging at times with, with Megan and just making those connections and opening up and really being vulnerable uh, with her has, has definitely, uh, it's getting better, but it's still an ongoing process. And it, it definitely took a, a toll on our, our marriage of first you know, eight to 10 years of it that we're just working through. So, but it wasn't even until the eighth year though, that, uh, you, that the, this issue even came up of the, uh, mental illness diagnosis, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was uh, becoming more and more distant and yeah, closing in on myself. And so she could 
definitely tell that, but didn't know what was going on. Our, our first eight years were rough because he was trying to keep the secret and he would push me away a lot. Um, so it was, it was a relief to know that it wasn't necessarily me that he was pulling away for it from, but then it brought up this whole new concern that like my husband's suicidal. And so then I had this fear that I was going to lose him. What are some of the other obstacles that, that his disorder has created in your marriage? He's really good at hiding things because he did it for so long. So there's a little bit of trust issues, I guess. And then I think like, you know, when he's in his more depressive state, he pulls away and it's hard not to think that it's like him pulling away from me and not wanting to be with me anymore. He's, he doesn't show very much emotion either. And so, um, just making those connections that are needed in a relationship, um, can be challenging. So how, how do you guys work through those challenges? What have you kind of learned to do to face those obstacles without, you know, throwing up your hands and just saying, this is too hard. I would say the the biggest thing that we've, we've done is uh, go to therapy and learn some of the skills of how to, um, to identify you know, what, what's, what's going on with me, but also being able to identify how do we make that connection? How do we have more open communication, um, have more patience and, and understanding? And I think that's made a huge difference the last couple of years. Oh, that's great. So did you only start going to therapy in, in the more recent years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, the couples therapy, we definitely has been the last, what, two years? Yeah. Something like that. I think there are a lot of people who are super hesitant to go to couples therapy. And I don't know why. I would say, I mean, I think there's still that stigma around it um, where you, you, you only go to therapy if something's wrong. Where really, the I, I think for us, the biggest breakthroughs have been, you know, when I'm more level and uh, in, in, in a good spot, I think we make way more uh, steps forward than when I'm in a depressive state and we go. And so, uh, you know, I think people still look at it as I only need it when I'm having issues versus I think everyone should, honestly, every married couple should go to it just because you can learn so many skills and how to communicate better, um, you know, when you're in a good place. And that's the best time to do it. I think that's really good advice. You mentioned, Alex, before that you were concerned when people would approach you because you didn't want to stumble over your words or appear, I don't know, inept or, or something like that. Is that due to the anxiety that you developed because of the schizoaffective disorder? Or does it have something to do with, are these voices that speak to you are they negative and and um attack you as a person yeah so so both yeah the the anxiety that i've i've gotten over the years definitely is a driver a lot of times when with the voices that are constant it takes me a minute to really understand what people are saying and kind of 
filter out the voices. And so sometimes it, it, you know, I'll just sit there for a second and think about it and may not understand fully what they actually said. And so, you know, it made those situations where I wasn't controlling the conversation uh, difficult because I didn't want to sound like I didn't know what I was talking about or uh, that I was, wasn't, you know, smart. And the voices definitely are negative and constant. I like to say, think about, you know, junior high, high school, and what could the the worst thing boys and girls could say to you. And that's what they're saying constantly in my head. Um, And if they're not saying really negative things, sometimes it's even more annoying that they sit there and they'll narrate what's going on around me. Um, kind of like a, you know, a, a, a sports uh, broadcaster will narrate the game for you. Wow. Gosh, that would be such a difficult way to live. Yeah. And it's, it's only been the last few years where I've really been able to learn how to, some skills to, to um, push them away and, and ignore them more. Is that, do they have treatment available in the form of medication or is it really mostly just strategies that you employ yourself mentally? Yeah, for me, it's, it's more the learning the strategies and the coping skills and, you know, knowing that the, the voices aren't going anywhere. So how do I adapt? And then with the, the, the visual part, it's really being able to understand what's real and what's not. And so that's been strategies as well. So you actually see mirages? Yeah. So have you seen uh, A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. So I like to say it's kind of like that, except I'm not smart, as smart as him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there'll, there'll be some some days it's, uh, you know, people that are personal just follow me around or just even in a crowd. Um I'll be sitting at home, even if I'm nights that my wife works and, or even just when I can't sleep at night and just look up and there's, you know, people standing there or trying to talk to me or, um, so it's, it's people I don't really recognize every once in a while. There's the same images, but, uh, uh, for the longest time, I just thought they were angels or demons or. Um, you know, whatever you get taught as a child and wasn't until really until I started getting help to, to figure out what they actually were. And it was just my mind, um, you know, playing tricks on me. Now that you've been more open about this with your family and friends, presumably, uh, have you learned if there are other people in your family who have struggled with similar issues? Yeah, I've, uh, as I started talking to my parents, I initially thought, you know, none of them, they'd always ask me, uh, the, the therapists, if anyone in my family had that extended family and I didn't know anyone. And so, um, I've heard some rumblings of it being in my, my mother's family, um, and a lot of, a lot of depression and anxiety for sure. But, uh, and probably some, some bipolar in there, but, uh, it slowly started to to make more sense as I've learned more about kind of the, the talked more openly with my family about it. What have you guys 
as a couple talk to your children about the things that you deal with? Uh, so I'm pretty open, uh, especially with our, our nine-year-old. I will, I've, I've had some, some talks with her. Uh, we were a little worried cause she is somewhat can be quiet and kind of bottle her emotions up like I did as a kid. So we we're worried that uh, my, you know, my greatest fear is passing some of this on to my kids and having them have to, to go through some of the things that I did and do go through. Um, and so, you know, trying to get her to open up, I've had conversations where I've told her, you know, that, that I see people and, and hear voices and ask her if she, you know, does. And luckily she says no. Um, but, uh, as they get older, definitely it's something that I want to be open and with them and, and know that, you know, try to get that stigma away from, from it uh, and educate them so that they know kind of how, why dad sometimes is quiet or withdrawn. And so they're, they're starting to learn that and, and be able to deal with it better. So I'm wondering a little bit, have you noticed people treating you differently as you've become more open about your disorder? Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, I would say initially, for sure, uh, it seemed like as soon as I told people what was going on, it's like the, the kid gloves came out. And um, I mean, sometimes it was nice because I could use that as an excuse to not do things I didn't want to with my family, but um, they definitely started treating me uh, with more patience and understanding um, definitely now than a few years ago. But uh, as I've opened up, I've opened up at work and told, um, you know, which was terrifying to tell your boss and, and uh, leaders in your company, because there is that stigma and, and, you know, who, who wants to promote or hire work with the person that, you know, may or may not be up or down depending on the day. Um, but they, they've been great about it and very ask a lot of questions and get to know um, what I'm going through and really under understanding, uh, which has been, uh, has helped me tremendously at work uh, because for years before the first few years I was at a different company and my manager was not like that. And so I couldn't open up um, and explain why, you know, sometimes I wouldn't be as talkative or, or you know, dissociate and just, um, you know, be hard to be focus at work and, and really get things done. And sometimes I'd be great. And so now the last couple of years that I've been at this new company, they, they've done a great job and uh, just having discussions around mental health in general and having different uh, uh, discussion groups and really trying to get the um, education out there, which has been great to see. Yeah. It's definitely something that's needed that education for sure, especially surrounding these stigmatized disorders. And Megan, I actually wanted to ask you, what do you think is, has made the difference in being able to continue forward with a happy um, marriage and family life, despite very significant challenges 
with Alex's mental health. I mean, gosh, it definitely has its ups and downs. But, you know, if he had been diagnosed with cancer, you know, I would stick by him and support him and be there for him. And it's the same thing with mental health. I still love him and I'm going to be there for him and support him. And some days it's hard and it requires a lot of patience sometimes. But I think the communication skills that we've learned through therapy, we've just had to put those to use more often to help keep things together. Right. And Alex, what would you say has made the difference for you in being able to stick with it and not give in to some of those depressive thoughts? Yeah, for me, it's it's having the support system around me and, and building that up and then also building you know, some of those uh, coping skills. And I've, I've started to pick up, I'm not very good at it, but uh, started to pick up meditation. It's it's really helped, even though it's a few minutes here or there. But um, yeah, it's it's been a, a, a key to, to making differences. I agree. It's like meditation. It feels like you just don't ever have time for it. And yet I never regret doing it. Megan, what's something that you wish that other people understood better about mental illness now that you've kind of gone on this journey with Alex? Honestly, like it's way more common than people think. I work in healthcare and there's and I think that opened my eyes to how common it actually is. Um, you know, I was get, getting a report on patients and how many people there are out there that suffer with all kinds of mental illnesses, but nobody talks about it because of the stigma. And then, you know, you never know what someone's going through. And so just be patient with people and show love and kindness when they might be being a jerk to you. Um, because you just don't know what that's what their situation is at that time. And I wish there was better resources out there for mental health. I see so many patients sit in ERs for days while we're trying to find beds for them. There just isn't enough help out there. Like we changed insurances and Alex had to find a new therapist. And so many of them are not accepting patients because they're completely full. We definitely have a long way to go in getting the mental health support that is needed. How about you, Alex? What do you wish that other people understood better about mental illness? Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, that's the biggest one for me is, you know, from, from a distance, you know, I look, look and act and just like a normal person, but uh, you you don't see the daily struggle and you don't hear what's going on in my head and you don't see what what I see. And so um, sometimes it's easy to just uh, write people off and uh, not realize that they can still be, uh, you know, functional and lead a, a productive life. What advice would you give to partners of those who are struggling with either schizoaffective disorder or just other similar disorders like bipolar or anxiety? What, what advice would you give to lend support to caregivers? Find um, a support group. Um, I don't have any that I like attend in person, but I am in some groups on Facebook. 
and then I need to listen to my own advice on this one, but therapy, it's really hard sometimes. And there's definitely things that I need to work through and process. So again, there's like that stigma of going to therapy, but it's so beneficial and can be so helpful to a caregiver to help them process things. So you're talking about personal therapy, not just couples therapy, but going on your own as well. Yes. I mean, couples therapy has been so helpful for us. So, so helpful. But I also think if I went to therapy for myself as well, it would be very helpful. Absolutely. How about you, Alex? What advice would you give to a spouse who doesn't understand necessarily what it's like to be in the shoes of their partner who has a disorder, but what would advice would you give them as to how they could help? I, I would say having that empathy and understanding and some days it's really hard, but asking a lot of questions, getting to know what, you know, what, what triggers your, your spouse or significant other and, and really showing, uh, you know, that compassion and empathy um, and patience, because uh, it does take a lot of patience. Um, close here. I just wonder if you have um, any last thoughts, Alex, on what you have learned from 2016 until now. What are, I guess it's been five years. What are the most valuable lessons that you have learned since you decided to open up about what you're dealing with? Uh, one of the biggest things I think is it's sometimes okay to not be okay. And, you know, really being able to, to, to sometimes open up about being depressed or being in a uh, depressive, you know, state um, can be sometimes hard to, to admit. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, good to sit in that, that pain and, and learn from it and uh, develop the skills to be able to, to get out of that and, um, be able to communicate that I think is is critical. The goal of Mental Illness in Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness in Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness in Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.